I gotta put my little uh, microphone clip things back on here because they're uh, they're causing my microphone to to dangle. Can't have a dangling microphone and do a good show. Okay, welcome in. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I am the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. Come join us for worship on Sunday morning, 1030. We'd be glad to see you. Unless you're playing hooky from your church. Don't you, do that. Where you can hear an entire sermon preached in one breath of <laughs> Well, actually not. But you got you know I'm in Ephesians, so Paul did say a lot of stuff in extremely long sentences in the book of Ephesians. Uh, not so much this week, though. Okay, we, yesterday we talked about Josh Hawley uh, being just an expert questioner. And I, I usually don't do stuff in the same way, back-to-back every day, mostly because I can't remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this th- today I'm going to make an exception because yesterday Senator Hawley went after somebody that a lot of uh, conservatives, I think, would applaud him for going after, and that would be Attorney General Merrick Garland. You know, the the memo that went out about the Catholic Church was horrendous on many levels because, for one thing, it was based on information provided by the Southern Poverty, We Hate Christians, and Everybody That Doesn't Agree With Us Law Center. And so, you know, getting information from them, you know, is is really, it, it's just, it, it's, it's really bad. Um, particularly if you're going to talk about anything that has to do with faith and decency. So the FBI runs over there to the Southern Poverty Law Center, listens to them whine and moan about uh, how bigoted and terrible the Catholic Church is, and then they put out a memo that says that the Catholic Church is bigoted and terrible and uh, is probably up to something, particularly traditionalist Catholics who, heavens to Betsy, still do the Mass in Latin. So, um, you know, I mean, that's actually in the memo, that wording. It's how you do the Mass could could make you a criminal. Heavens to Betsy was in there, too? Uh, Heavens to Betsy was not in the memo. That's that was good. from the recesses of my mind. That just distinctly lacks professionalism. Which really needs to go on recess. was using terminology like that in their formal reports. Yeah. I think we no, need no, a formal you. report about the language used in formal I to- reports. I told you it was the recesses of my mind. Uh, okay, yesterday, but Josh Hawley was not going to put up with anything from Merrick Garland yesterday about it. Now I got to—I'm going to give Merrick Garland some credit, and you're not going to like it because you—you're—you're—you know—we all want all the bad guys to be bad all the time so that we can always be critical. But Attorney General Merrick Garland did express horror. I think is what he or horror. He was anyway. He spoke very disparagingly about this particular memo and said that it never should have been put out and that the FBI rescinded it and that the FBI is investigating to find out how this memo could ever be put out. So I'm I'm holding my breath for a report. You know, that's kind of like that's kind of like putting the mongoose in charge of the snake investigation. I mean, this is this is not a good idea to let the FBI investigate itself over this. 
But anyway, uh, thought I'd let you hear a little bit of this exchange again, just because I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I'm kind of, uh, what's the term? The you know when you one man admires another, like. Not, oh, you're not, fangirling. Yeah, I'm fan fangirling. Okay, over I'm kind Josh of fan. Hawley. I'm kind of fangirling over Josh Hawley. because uh, I just want to hear his voice, but <laughs> but. Um, you know, it, it. I also want you to hear Merrick Garland's answer and how this exchange went down yesterday. So here we go. As I said, here we go. January of this year issued a memorandum in which they advocated for, and I quote, the exploration of new avenues for tripwire and source development against traditionalist Catholics, it's their, their language, including those who favor the Latin mass. Attorney General, are you cultivating sources and spies in Latin mass parishes and other Catholic parishes around the country? The Justice Department does not do that. It does not um, um, do investigations based on religion. I saw the document you have. What it's did you appalling. Do it's appalling. I'm in complete agreement with you. I understand that the FBI has withdrawn it and it's now looking into how this could ever have happened. How did it happen? That's what they're looking into. But I'm totally in agreement with you. That document is appalling. I'll tell you how it happened. The this memorandum, which is supposed to be intelligent, cites extensively the Southern Poverty Law Center, which goes on to identify all of these different Catholics as being part of hate groups. Is, is this how the FBI, under your direction and leadership, is, is this how they do their intelligence work? They look, they look at left-wing advocacy groups to target Catholics? Is this what's going on? I mean, clearly it is. How is this happening? The FBI is not targeting Catholics, and, and as I've said, this is an uh, an inappropriate memorandum, and it doesn't reflect the methods that the FBI is supposed to be using. It should not be relying on any single organization without doing its own work. Okay, so there you go. That's um, exactly what Chris Ray should have said. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, you know, at least you admit right. you're wrong. Right, right. Well, um, and now when the questions came up to him about what about these, uh, the fact that you're not arresting protesters outside of the homes of Supreme Court justices, and the suggestion was made if these were liberal justices that you'd be hauling them off to jail. And the only thing the attorney general could say about that, he had a, it, was, it was a terrible explanation. He said the U.S. Marshals in those locations make decisions about arrest. And so, and so the question was, so you can't direct the U.S. Marshals to make arrest? And he, he reiterated that those decisions were made on the scene by the U.S. Marshals. And that they they chose and decided not to arrest, and that's within their. He said, "We're our job is to prosecute people that the U.S. Marshals arrest." How does that fly with a country away from North Carolina? It's well, a logic. Are you getting the logic? Are you picking that up? There's zero logic in it. The oh. Justice Department, they direct the U.S. Marshals, the FBI. I mean, they can tell them go out and arrest these people. They're breaking the law. Any prosecutor can do that. Prosecutor can call the detectives in, just like they do on, you know, when Briscoe and Logan come in, or, or you know, Briscoe and Green, or Briscoe and whoever else was with Briscoe for all those years. When when they call them in, they say, you know, go go put the cuffs on these guys, go arrest them. Prosecutor can do that. Certainly, the Attorney General of the United States can do it. He chose not to because it was it was they it was conservatives that were being protested, and he was going to have to haul people that were chief supporters of the administration that he works for off to jail 
um, if, if he was going to enforce the law. So the rule of thumb in the Biden administration, now let's broaden this thing out. Let's just let's stop talking about the attorney general alone and talk about the Biden administration. The rule of thumb in the Biden administration is if you're a friend of this administration, there's one law for you. And if you're an enemy of this administration, there's another law for you. And the law for you, if you're an enemy, is harsh, quick, um, you know, guns out, coming to your house early in the morning, dragging you out of your house in front of your children when all you did was protest and you happen to be a Catholic. I mean, that's, you know, when you put these things together, there is a bias, which is, which is unbelievable considering the fact that the president of the United States calls himself a Catholic and says he's a practicing devout Catholic. And yet it's Catholics. It was a Catholic whose home got raided, who was found innocent in an hour, Less than an hour, took the jury less than an hour to find him not guilty on the charges that they brought against him. And then we have a memorandum like this that comes out from the same FBI. And Merrick Garland's trying to sit there and saying, Yeah, this is terrible, but, but we don't have a problem. We don't target faith. Yes, you do. You've got a culture within the FBI that's been allowed to grow that is prejudiced against Catholics and people of faith and conservatives. And you're the man. You've got the title. You've got the job. You're supposed to do something about it. So you're not doing your homework. You're supposed to be reading the highlighted portions of this because we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. Okay. It's okay. You just can't come in here and press buttons and think you got your job done. All right. There I'll you go. That sounds a lot better. All right. Okay. Um, can, can we get the whatever this is? Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm supposed to be pushing buttons, and then you tell me to read an article. I can't do two things at once. Sure you okay, can. I'm a dude. Oh, come on. I'm a dude. Yeah, well, true. <laughs> um, kudos to three congressmen. The kudos go to Representative Jim Jordan, Republican Ohio, Representative uh, Chip Roy, Republican Texas, and Representative Dan Bishop, Republican North Carolina. You might notice that the three things they have in common is that they are all Republicans, and they chose to do something that was long overdue, and that's to honor the life and contributions of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. You know, we just came through Black History Month, and schools all over the country were filled with documentaries about Black Lives Matter and uh, all of the racist rhetoric that goes along with critical race theory celebrating Black History Month instead of looking at people that are contemporary heroes, uh, contemporary examples of what it means to overcome adversity and challenging uh, circumstances in order to rise to become one of the most respected people in America. Now, Clarence Thomas is not respected by the left, but you can't ex- that you, you have to expect that. Their, their criteria is simply that he's conservative. Uh, he happens to also be an African American. He's a black man, but that doesn't that doesn't cut any mustard with the progressives when it comes to recognizing him because his philosophy. You have to have what they b- believe to be a sixteen nineteen view of the country. You've got to have a progressive uh, uh, view of America. You've got to believe that um, you know conservatives are bigots uh, to the core. And if you if you don't support all those things, then you don't get to be labeled as being as having any credit for rising to the Supreme Court as a black man, which 
all we hear when a progressive is advanced, it's all about their intersectionality scores. You know, if you're if you're a woman and you're black, you you get two. You you have that's two intersectionality scores. If you're a woman and you're black and you're a lesbian, that's three intersectionality scores. You're you're really, um, you you know, you become your opinion becomes more valid because of the degree of your intersectionality when it comes to the culture. I mean, it's it's nonsense, but that's the way the left looks at things. And so it, through that rubric. Uh, looking through that dark glassly, uh, dark glassly, glass darkly, um, you're always going to see, and or I should say, not see the true accomplishments of great Americans who are black. And Justice Thomas is certainly one of those. Here's just a couple of quotes from yesterday. Now, all this took place at the Heritage Foundation, where they debuted a documentary on Justice Thomas and his life. And I want to see this. I, I'm I'm anxious to watch it. I didn't know it was out there. I think they just—I think they just put it out yesterday. Um, but here's a quote from Representative Jim Jordan: "Justice Thomas is just a great American who has done so much for our country. He's the American story, from such humble beginnings to the United States Supreme Court, shows what hard work and perseverance can mean in our great country. And yet, how many schools? How many school children?" are hearing about Justice Clarence Thomas during Black History Month? How many schoolchildren are hearing about uh, Senator Tim Scott during Black History Month? How many would hear about Condoleezza Rice during Black History Month? They're, you're not, they're not going to hear because these are not judged to be legitimately black people because they happen to be conservative, and they happen to look at the world through a dis- different prism. Jordan, along with Representatives Chip Roy and Dan Bishop, provided introductory remarks at a showing of the documentary Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words, on February 28th, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, of course, the Daily Signal is a multimedia outlet of the Heritage Foundation. Quote, I think he, Thomas, is arguably the greatest living American, Roy told the Daily Signal. He's a role model to me and others that are lawyers that have come of age while he's been on the bench. As a man of faith, Bishop said, Thomas inspires him. His commitment to fidelity to the Constitution shows his courage. Quote, Clarence Thomas is one of the genuine American heroes, and what stands out the most about him is his intellectual rigor, his commitment to principle, the clarity of his thought as a justice on the Supreme Court, Bishop said. All these things are certainly important, but you have to look at Clarence Thomas life and know that his courage can only be predicated on his life of faith in Jesus Christ. He would not be able to have withstood what he has withstood with the grace and calmness with which he's done it, except for the depth of that faith. That's some terrible writing right there, but the sentiment behind it is really good. So, so be it. Uh, Bishop said he admired Thomas' ability to rise above the false accusations brought against him in his nomination hearings with good cheer, friendliness, and care for others. Now, that's that's good right there. That's a good statement. The most significant accomplishment of Clarence Thomas has been to withstand perhaps the most brutal maligning of an honorable public figure across many years in spite of faithful and honorable service. See, this is you know, we sometimes we forget when we think about Brett Kavanaugh and what he went through. Went through. We think about um, actually uh, Justice Alito and what he went through, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett and what she went through. 
in the grilling to the horrible things that were said about them when all they were was responding to a request to an elevation by the president of the United States to the U.S. Supreme Court. All of these people have uh, impeccable credentials and a life of service in the legal system that could should be and could be emulated by anybody. And Judge Clarence Thomas was one of the first. If you remember, conservatives allowed Judge Bork to be not uh, um, included on the Supreme Court because of the vitriol, because of the strength of the attacks that came against him. So Bork withdrew his name when it became clear that he was not going to be able to get enough votes to make it to the court. And, of course, Senator Ted Kennedy was chief among those who attacked him. And and we actually um, have a phrase that entered the American lexicon, which is to be borked. So to be borked means to be treated the way Judge Bork was in a, an extremely unfair way uh, in order to deny somebody who is deserving an opportunity to serve at the highest levels of government. And that's what we see here with Clarence Thomas. They tried that with him. Thomas was the first one to come along after Bork that endured the kind of attacks that Bork did, and yet um, he remained firm and was able to defend himself in a way that was so compelling that the majority of the um, senators had no choice but to put him on the court. So I just um, I think honoring him is long past due. I'm glad to see it. I appreciate these congressmen who took their time to go and speak well of him. Uh, there are so many other conservatives. Condoleezza Rice deserves this kind, these kind of accolades. Um, so does uh, Tim Scott. And we could think of others that have, have come along who are shining examples of rising above different uh, difficult circumstances, and yet their intellect and the grace in which they live their lives uh, the strength with which they push back against those who falsely accuse them is an inspiration to everybody. And for Clarence Thomas, I don't know about uh, – well, and I know that's true for Tim Scott as well. I'm, I'm not as familiar with Condoleezza Rice. But for Tim Scott and Clarence Thomas, the, the, the factor that makes all the difference is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that changed them from the inside out, that allows them to be able to withstand the hatred of the world – because Jesus said that they hated me, they're going to hate you. And a lot of that is what comes from progressives today. It's, um, you know, it, it's a, and it's what makes people on the right suspicious of just about, um, you know, any motive that a progressive would have in passing legislation or doing anything else in our culture because of the demonstrated animosity that's out there toward people of faith. And it, it, one of the things that riles me um, the most about progressives is how they write people off that they should be celebrating. If, if their philosophy was consistent, Clarence Thomas would be a hero to the left because of his life circumstances and the fact that his race was not a barrier at all for him to rise to the top. He overcame racism. I mean, when Clarence Thomas was coming along, he faced real racism. And the racism, what's interesting is that it was coming primarily from people who are racist. That is, people who have a problem with anyone with skin tone different from them. 
And what's happening now is that Clarence, you know, Clarence Thomas is facing racism, but not from the people who originally would have uh, come against him because of his race. He's facing racism from those who won't give him credit, even though he is a member of the race that he is a member of. Uh, because he doesn't spout the right language, then he becomes an Uncle Tom, and he's subject to derision by the people that should be celebrating his accomplishments. Um, okay, a couple of things. Number one, if you enjoy this radio program, uh, I think you would enjoy hearing it anywhere, right? I mean, the radio as a device is not what causes you to enjoy the program, hopefully. Uh, hopefully it's because you like the way I think about things or you like the dulcet tones of my voice or there's something about the radio program that draws you into uh, a desire to listen. Hubris, it's such an ugly thing. It is an ugly thing, <laughs> especially in others. So anyway, uh, <laughs> the opportunity to listen to this program on the radio is going away March 31st. We are, I mean, this is March the 2nd. So we're, what, 29 days away here from uh, a 21-year run coming to an end, except that it's not going to come to an end. His radio talk will come to an end on March 31st when Gary Miller officially retires. So 91.9 and 89.7 is going to become more of a um, music format of some description. But if you like listening to me and you want to continue, uh, there's a website being built right now that hopefully is going to be finished in another week or so where you'll be able to go. I'll be able to give you the web address and you can listen to this show streaming live in the mornings from 730 to 830. Now, when I say listen to this show, I need to clarify. It's not going to be this show. It's not going to be Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. It's going to be Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And it's going to be 60 minutes instead of an hour, uh, two hours. And then it'll be available as a podcast. Some of you are already downloading and have subscribed to the podcast, and I appreciate that. Uh, we're going to try to change the format of the podcast up a little bit uh, so that it makes it more popular and more people will access it by changing changing the name and the way we do it, I think, is going to help. But if you, if you really want to tune in, like at this time every morning, um, starting at 7.30, you'll be able to stream this program on the website, and if you have a uh, smart device, you can Bluetooth that right through your car radio. So you can actually continue to listen to it in the car uh, through your car speakers. Uh, you just won't be able to listen to it on the radio. So all that's coming up March 31st. April 3rd will be the first new show, and uh, I'm going to be I'll be letting you know about all of that as we get closer. We've got to get this website done. Uh, so that I can start start telling you where to go with it. All right. Um, yesterday in Columbia, a couple things are going on that you need to be aware of. Uh, still no progress when it comes to getting a pro-life bill passed. Um, unfortunately, my prediction is that we're going to run out of time. Uh, we'll get to the end of the session, even though we're not really quite halfway through the session yet. We're going to come to the end of the session without a bill to protect life. Uh, because it's it's just the the Senate's dug in, the House is dug in. They both want their way, and there's not a compromise way that's even on the table right now or being discussed uh, seriously. So uh, we may end up 
with 1,000 abortions a month. We're waiting right now to get the numbers for February uh, from DHEC, find out you know, what, how many abortions are we actually dealing with here in South Carolina. But, uh, and hopefully that's going to be a motivating factor for our senators and our House members to work this out. But yesterday, a couple of other disturbing things happened. First, uh, there was a subcommittee hearing yesterday morning at 9 o'clock. Now, I can't do the show, obviously, live here in Greenville and be in Columbia at 9 o'clock. I've been able to manage a lot of diversity in my life when it comes to the things that I do, but I still haven't figured out how to be in two places at once. And I don't have a transporter, so my best mode of transportation is still... 26 uh, or for me from here 385 to 26 to columbia and that's about two hours it's an hour and 45 minutes by the time i get parked and get into the capital um it's it's a good two hours so i couldn't be here and there at the same time but i did send a letter and the the name of the bill that came up yesterday in a subcommittee was get this the equine advancement act now this is a bill about paramutual betting. You know, this is, this would, it, it, so imagine a book written about the Titanic, and the title of the book was Tracking Icebergs. I mean, that, you know, it, that, that, that would be not the point, right? If you're going to talk about the sinking of the Titanic, tracking an iceberg is not exactly the point of the of a book that you would write about what happened, um, and so by naming this bill the Equine Advancement Act, it totally obscures the fact that this is straight up a bill about paramutual betting. It's a bill that would open the door for that kind of gambling in South Carolina, and of course, I had somebody that I was having a conversation with yesterday said, "Well, if everybody's doing it, maybe we should regulate it." And I, I couldn't help, I said to the person, just straight up, I said, well, uh, you must have been raised in a different home than I was raised in. Because when I came home and told my mama that everybody was doing it, her first comment to me was not, well, let's figure out how to regulate that for you. No, her first comment was, well, everybody may be doing it, but you ain't. Because it's bad, and you're not going to participate in something that's destructive. And that's my comment here. Look, why would, as I've said before, vice can never be a foundation for a virtuous thing. And so if you're going to make gambling the foundation for saving the horse industry in South Carolina, then why, why how in the world can that make sense to anybody? Um, paramutual betting means uh, almost within a year, I would say, we would have casino gambling. I mean, gambling interests are drooling over South Carolina because they took Mississippi, they've taken other conservative states, and they really, really, really want to have casinos in South Carolina along Myrtle Beach. They think that would just, in fact, the argument there is, oh, we're going to, that'll spur development along the coast. Yeah. Is that the kind of development you want to load your family up and take? Right now, Myrtle Beach is a wonderful place to take your family. Now, it's not a great place downtown to take your family. They're working on that. But do you think it's going to improve because you've got casinos down there? I mean, there's all kind of grift that follows gambling. And it's just 
this frustrates me, first of all, that they would name a bill so inappropriately to cover up its true purpose. And its true purpose is to bring paramutual betting into South Carolina. Now, I'm going to read this letter that I sent to uh, the Honorable Weston Newton, who is the chairman of the South Carolina House Judiciary Committee. I'm just going to end up talking about paramutual betting by reading the letter that I sent to him. Dear Chairman Newton, I'm writing to express my opposition um, and the opposition of the South Carolina Office of Public Baptist Office of Public Policy to H3514, also known as the South Carolina Equine Advancement Act. The innocuous name of this bill camouflages its true purpose, which is to introduce paramutual betting in South Carolina. While assisting and supporting the struggling equine industry may be a noble goal, we should be reminded that vice can never result in a virtuous outcome. Gambling is a highly addictive and destructive influence that will usher in consequences that will far outweigh any financial advantage that may be gained by the equine industry. Opening the door to paramutual betting means opening the door to all forms of gambling, including, eventually, casino gambling. The human cost of this in the form of a rise in crime, bankruptcies, lost jobs, and suicides will undermine the quality of life for every South Carolinian. Problem gambling, and that gets shortened often to PG, or pathological gambling, PAG, result in considerable expenditures to the gamblers, their families, employers, taxpayers, and many of our cultural institutions. The economic impacts are great, but the social costs are immeasurable. If we learned anything from video poker gambling, it should be that South Carolina does not need to be built on an industry that siphons the life out of its citizens. We fought long and hard against the devastating effects of video poker. Now is not the time to reintroduce this destructive force in South Carolina. If the equine industry needs government assistance in order to thrive and legislators are convinced of its value to the state, then the legislature should appropriate funds to support the industry from the abundant surplus that's been accumulated over the last several years. If South Carolina can afford to send a tax rebate to all of its taxpayers, surely we can come up with a plan to rescue the equine industry without embracing the crime and personal destruction that will surely follow an open door to paramutual betting. Gambling, like kudzu, grows wherever it's introduced. I would remind lawmakers that Governor Henry McMaster just won a historic electoral re-election, posting an 18%-plus margin of victory over an opponent who openly called for the legalization of paramutual betting. The people of South Carolina have expressed their view on this, on this subject through the election and have widely rejected it in an overwhelming manner. The South Carolina Baptist Convention has passed several resolutions opposing gambling and specifically opposing paramutual betting. Later this week, I'll be providing committee members with copies of those resolutions, as well as information highlighting the devastating effects of gambling on individuals and institutions. I respectfully, prayerfully, and strongly request that you vote against this bill. Please work together to find a better solution for the equine industry that will not change the very nature of life in South Carolina. So I would encourage you, if you agree with me on what I just said, you need to contact your House members, and tell them to vote against this bill if it gets to the floor. 
look up ju- your uh, the Judiciary Committee members. You can go to sc.statehouse.gov. That's sc.statehouse.gov. It's not a difficult website to navigate, and you can find all the information you need to weigh in on this topic. And and I well, I would encourage you weigh in. Another thing that happened yesterday was that the Judiciary Full Committee in the House passed a hate crimes bill out to the floor. Now, this also was kind of a surprise because it was my understanding they weren't going to deal with this at all or at at, le- at the very least late in the session. This bill got rushed and it got brought to the House floor. It'll be read across the desk today, as they say. It'll, it'll have first reading and it'll be put on the calendar. Now, the... The hate crimes bill, South Carolina is one of two states that doesn't have a hate crimes bill specific, Wyoming and South Carolina. And the, the, and you hear this all the time. What you don't hear is that a lot of the states that have hate crime legislation protect or add additional penalty, penalties for crimes based on race or gender. And when I say gender, I mean male or female um, or some other immutable characteristics. But what this bill does, and there are other hate crime bills across the country that include the SOGI language, so to speak, the LGBTQ agenda. And that's, what's, that's what this hate, hate crimes bill does. It actually has the Bostock language from the Supreme Court case that determined that the word sex in the uh, 1967 uh, Civil Rights Act actually encompasses transgender same-sex relationships, all of that. The LGBTQ agenda is shoved into um, a word that was included in 1967 in which we would never consider, 66-67, whenever the Civil Rights Act passed, a a time that we would never have considered those things. So um, that hopefully we're going to – I don't know that we can stop that bill from being passed um, in the House – what I'm pray- praying about, and I-, I would ask you to join me and also contact your House members, is that Bostock language has got to come out of there. I mean, it's if it's going to pass, then at the very least, we've got to get the bad language out that would open up the door for Christian organizations to be uh, you know, attacked using the language in this hate crimes bill as a foundation. In a more in a more general sense, um, the Family Caucus, led by uh, John McCravey, is a considerable force in the House. Is it not? Yes, but I mean, do they have a sizable alone, voting block? Yeah, they got they've got a voting a sizable voting block, but they can't stop this alone. Can, is that right? okay? I just not even. If, I mean, because obviously, all all of their members, I assume, would be aware and 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 would be concerned about an issue like this. I think they would all be concerned. I don't know that they would all vote is against right? it. Okay. Um, I know a couple of conservatives on judiciary that actually voted for this. There was only one vote against this in judiciary committee. Is that right? And that was Even, John McCravey. And with the Soji language in it. And with the language in there. Wow. So, and I don't, I, I, I cannot explain that. I'm not going to go after anybody because right. I don't. I found out all of this yesterday, hmm. so I haven't had time to try to figure out what in the world's going on. Um, I, I got a little bit of intel last night, but um, you know, r- right now. The focus needs to be, I mean, it would be better that we don't get this bill. It would be a disaster if we get it with the Bostock language in it. So there, we're getting, there's got to be some amendments. Mike's on the phone. Mike, go ahead. Uh, well, good morning, Tony. I wanted to just to say a couple of things. First of all, thank you for giving us 
uh, an update on what happened yesterday. Uh, we sure. we wouldn't know if you hadn't uh, if you weren't telling us that, and uh, especially on the paramutual betting bill um, I, that should be named. Uh, we don't want you to know what this is about, Bill. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that, that, that's what that, that's what that is, and that's that's happening uh, also in the, the ACOS bill. But thank you for doing that, and um, and I just wanted to say also thank you for for the program. Uh, uh, I am uh, looking forward, or I'm no, I'm appreciative that you're doing the website podcast to keep this out there because the voice that you have is extremely important. Uh, Thank you, sir. I, I, I believe the, um, the, uh, the, the part that this the station and the program plays in public policy is very, very important. In fact, I know that it is. So thank you for, and I hope, I want to encourage everyone to just, you know, make that switch because uh, there's never been a time, and I've been around a long time, there's never been a time that I can remember that it was more important to stay informed because there's so much happening. And I just want to say thank you for that, and uh, thanks for the update. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that very much. Appreciate you calling in today. Um, well, look, I'm looking forward to whatever this next stage looks like. I, I'm a little apprehensive about it, because, mainly because my, I mean, my routine, literally, for 21 years, is up at 4.30, breakfast here at the station by 6, doing the show by 7. And, you know, just, just the... <laughs> Just getting out of that pattern and getting into a new pattern after so long uh, is going to be different. But um, you know, different's good. Um, the main thing is we're gonna we're gonna continue on. I, you know, I'm uh, I'm a little older. I'm getting a little uh, a little older every day, and uh, but I'm still. You know, I've still got plenty of energy. I've, I've still got plenty of desire to know what's going on and try to communicate that in a way to keep you informed. And I think it's the, the title, the new title of the show is, I think, important because politics and culture sort of uh, are a uh, one is a, a reflection of the other. And there's a debate about which way that reflection runs. Does politics reflect the culture or does culture influence and reflect politics? And I think it there there are ways in which both of those things are going on at the same time. You kind of got current running both ways, so finding the truth in all of that is sometimes very challenging, especially with all of the outright lies that are that are put out. I mean, yesterday we gave you a prime example of that somebody that wants to be over the archives of the United States, and they were lying and uh, just refusing to answer questions. You, as a citizen, because you're going to pay their salary and you're going to have to live in the country that your history gets managed by this person, you need to know that and you need to be able to respond. That's the way constitutional republics work. So I want to do my best to bring truth to politics and culture as we look at both of those things for an hour every day. You're only and, 65. What's a career change? You know, you know just some, <laughs> some people buy a 30-acre farm at your age. Yeah, so. I know. I know. See, I've already got that. I've already bought the farm. So, <laughs> no. I, I mean, I have I have our space. So, um, yeah, I'm looking I'm looking forward to doing it. Um, and I'm, But I'm going to miss this format and being able to do it this way for so long. Uh, okay, we're not going to have time to deal with that story. I thought we were going to talk about... Uh, American sports 
uh, that there's there's an uh, article out there that we'll get into in the next hour. Is it soccer? Nope. It's a, I, I, just I, knew I, you I was talking about, about sports. Oh, I, I wasn't oh, talking about, about I was talking about soccer or hockey. Um, so no, I'm I'm kidding. Hockey and I guess soccer are sports. Are fine sports if you're yeah. a girl, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> no, that's terrible. <laughs> this is not a misogynist program. Um, but next hour, we are going to talk about a, an interesting debate that's going on. I didn't, I didn't even know about this um, until I saw this article at National Review. But apparently, there are people out there who are insisting that American sports are um, – proof that socialism works now on the surface when you hear these arguments in fact if if i had heard these arguments without reading this article i may have been momentarily bumfuzzled that is i wouldn't know what to say because the arguments sound so cogent when they start talking about how football in particular works but when you look at it in the larger picture it makes no sense at all. So we're going to – anyway, we'll, we'll dive into that because there are a lot of people online, evidently. Now, I don't see this kind of stuff, but, um, you know, apparently it's out there. People making the argument that America needs to be socialist because we're already socialist in our major sports, the NBA, baseball, uh, you know, the NFL. So why not just embrace, because it works so well in those arenas, why not embrace socialism for the country? And it's a terrible argument. It's misplaced. It's uh, not, you know, it doesn't make sense when you look at it in the in the big picture of what America is and how these entities exist within our, within our country. But it, on the surface, it'll kind of, you know, really get your attention. If you so. zoom in close enough on the electric vehicle issue and just look at the tailpipe as it's driving down the road, you'll see that there's no emissions coming out. And so you're like, oh, green energy. <laughs> and if you don't kind of zoom out and get the whole production process involved and the mining and the refining and all those different yeah. pieces of the puzzle, yeah. then you're going to say, oh, this is a piece of clean energy. You know, well, if you zoom in on sports, maybe you say, oh, this is a socialist venture until you zoom out and see that it's landed itself Firmly in a capitalist, you know, when you when you talk when you talk about electric vehicles, you know, nobody that I know of is, or at least very few people, are talking about what are we going to do with all these batteries? You know, you just you can't just take a battery and toss it in the landfill. You you can't you know it has to be disposed of in a pretty complicated way. Well, that's not a big deal right now because there's not enough electric cars. But if we get to the point that everybody's driving one, we've got to figure that out. Before everybody's driving an electric car, we can't wait till everybody's driving one and figure out what we're going to do with all those batteries. Oh yes, we can, and we well, will. No. And and it's the same thing with a power grid. I mean, we've already got a fragile power grid in in the United States. What is it about plugging in every car in in the country? I I need to just do a quick search here. How many cars are there? In the U.S. No, give your listeners a chance just to guess, okay? So okay, if you well, know there's 340 million people, that includes some older people who are gratefully not driving and some younger people who are gratefully not driving. Yeah. So then let's see. But that, but there's you more than guess? one car. Uh, yeah, I want to guess. Of okay. course I want to guess. I sure. guess probably 240 million. Okay. Okay. That's not enough, but Is, that's, that's oh. you know, 
You're you're in the garage. Half? Oh, am I in uh, the garage? Yeah, okay. you're in the garage. Okay. Well, the neighborhood. Let's put it that way. You haven't oh, gotten okay. to the garage yet. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's two hundred ninety point eight million. That's not too far off. Almost three hundred. Well, fifty million. Uh, uh, two hundred ninety point eight million. That's as of September twenty twenty two, and that includes all vehicles, cars, SUVs, vans, uh, the whole thing. And so think about it. Think about the day when we're not using fossil fuels anymore for transportation and all those vehicles have to be plugged in. Does anybody think our power, a power grid can, can handle that? California will be, I mean, we're going to see that first, uh, you know, cause they've got to have all electric cars only being sold. Doesn't mean everybody's got to have one, but all uh, the only electric vehicles will be able to be sold in California in 2035. Uh, and that's to, I mean, there. If it, California hasn't been able to figure out the power grid so far, um, I'm, I'm not all that confident they're going to get it figured out by 2035 when they have to plug in 40 million plus cars. Uh, it, it, that's not going to work.